Okay. Lord, thank you so much for this um, this meeting of souls. Lord, thank you for bringing every every single person here that you brought. I know we have a few missing that are normally here, and a few here that are normally not here, and so we're just grateful. Everybody's here for a reason. Um, thank you for getting me here after a really strange day. Uh, thank you for the the cold weather, Lord, and and thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a speaking God. You're a God who who cares about um, our knowing what you're like exactly, what you're like, what makes you tick, what makes your heart burn, what you love, what you hate. Um, and you hate seeing sin and evil destroy us and us destroy ourselves through sin. And so you sent your only son in the fullness of time at infinite cost to himself to rescue, to rescue us. And that's what this is about. And so I pray that um, tonight... Jesus, you would be exalted, that your word would be so clear, that we would be so convicted by our sin, and to know that we have a Savior who is greater than our sin, who loves us and and gave his life for us and is alive, defeated death and the power of sin. So, Jesus, we come in your name tonight. We we worship you. Um, We need you. We need you here now. I need you to speak in power and clarity. um, I pray that you just lay out the gospel before all of us through your word. we bless you and we say, come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in Romans. Romans is in the New Testament. Um, if you have a Bible, if you, if, you come, if you come again, hopefully you will, uh, bring a Bible if you can. If it's on your phone, that's all right. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the New, New Testament, you have the four Gospels and then Acts and then the book of Romans. That's where we are. So we're a few weeks in here and we're in chapter 2. Verses 17 through 29, so Romans 2, 17 through 29, we're, that's the last bit of Romans 2, and next week we'll be, we'll be in Romans 3, 1 through 20. So I will jump in and read the, read the text. Um, I normally would have, prefer having y'all read it, but just for the sake of the recording, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Um, so before I do, let me just say a few things. Um, I'm calling this this lesson um, this evening, having the law and circumcision cannot save you. Okay, having the law and circumcision cannot save you. Keller, Tim Keller, a teacher that I always quote, uh, he says, the re- he calls this the religious need the gospel part two. The religious need the gospel part two. Um, everybody okay so far? I see people looking around. You got your pages, got your, okay, got your candy, got your cocoa. All right. Um, so part one, the religious need the gospel part one was last week. And the week before that would have been the irreligious need the gospel, right? So Paul is, is in this, um, he's in this deep dive where he started, the, he started Romans by saying, by basically announcing the gospel and saying the gospel is the good news of what God has done for sinners like you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. And preeminently what the gospel does is, and this is what Paul chooses to, to say, he doesn't even say the gospel does the good news of what God has done in Christ does show us how much God loves us. Absolutely. Thank God it does. But Paul doesn't choose that word in Romans 1:17. He says the gospel shows us or reveals to us God's not love. He doesn't use that word in this verse at the beginning of Romans. He says the gospel reveals God's righteousness to us. And then he sets out in this section that we're in the middle of in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, through 3 verse 20, he sets out to show us that 
The first thing we need to be able to understand about the gospel sh- showing to us manifestly in bright colors God's righteousness is, is our, own un- own, excuse me, our own unrighteousness. That there is no way our own righteousness can save us. We have to despair of our own righteousness, utterly. Of our own ability to be right in God's eyes on our own standing by our own merit and performance. We have to first despair utterly of that before we can appreciate how God through his righteousness somehow cannot damn us but save us. And that's what Paul's going to do. So my point there is we're right in the middle of this huge section where Paul, and I described it like this before, is basically holding our heads under the water. And, and we are, I mean, for us, I think it's four, four, four or five weeks once we get through, see, next week. Next week will be the last week where he holds our heads under the water. So just for a little bit more. But he is holding us under the water, and by the time he lets his hands off, we are, our lungs will be screaming for gospel air, and he's going to give it to us. But not until Romans 3, verse 21. Okay, So that that gospel air, actually, we breathe it in, and it means something. It's life-saving because we know we can't save ourselves. And so what, if, we, if I was unpacking this strictly according to the text tonight, I wouldn't give you... The gospel is woven in some, but I would really just hold you completely under the water like Paul's doing. But I, you know I'm not going to do that as a teacher. I'm always going to give you some gospel goodness. Um, but we will really open it up in two weeks. And then Paul just goes for the rest of the book. So don't despair. Tonight is hard again, but it has to be hard. You know, in a movie, in a, any good story, like, like we tell our kids this, it's always darkest when? Right before the sunrise, right? Right before the dawn, right? It, the night has lasted, and right before the goodness is going to come up, it's the darkest and it's the coldest, Right? So, um, some, uh, okay, th- let me give you a summary, and I just kind of did, but a summary of this section, this, this section tonight is smack dab in the middle of God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. That's really what Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is. And we talked the first week where we, dealt it, where we do- delved into this, uh, Romans 1.18 through 32, of the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. So Paul starts by saying, the whole world, except for the Jews, is utterly unrighteous, utterly cannot stand before God, utterly sinful, utterly opposed to God, utterly worthy of God's just judgment. But So that's where he starts. And then he turns his gun on, guns on his own people. He's a Jew. And he goes, oh, Jews. It, the, basically, one commentator said this way. At the end of chapter one, he's turned his guns on everybody that's not Jewish. And remember, Paul's a Jew, the one writing this to the Roman church. And he said, hey, everybody that's not a Jew utterly fails to stand up before God in, in our sin and evil, in rebellion against God. So one commentator says, it's like the Jews would be the ones in chapter 2 who have just heard that and they're going, amen, brother, preach it. Because he's talking about everybody but the Jews. But then Paul, to the people saying amen in the pews, turns his guns on them and says, oh, but you're not exempt. So in, in, uh, in this section, in, in Romans 2, 1 through 3, 8, we're right in the middle of that section right now. He talks about the unrighteousness of the Jews. He wants to, for every Jew to make sure and understand, you are just as without excuse before the living God and just as unable to save yourself by your own merit as any non-Jew. Don't even think about trying to stand on your own good behavior. Um, and then next week what we'll get to is, um, we'll get to the, the last part of that, and then he goes, "Ho, oh, okay, so he goes, Gentiles, you're guilty. Jews, you're guilty. And then in Romans 3, 9 through 20, he says, Jew and Gentile, everyone, just to summarize, we're all without excuse. Not a single one of us 
Not a single one of us stands righteous before God in our own behavior. Okay, so in this section tonight, let me read it. Um, There are three sections in this passage. The first is that the Jews are proud that they are Jews. The second is they are proud because they have the law. And the third is that they are proud because they have a particular law that they're extra proud of that's the covenant sign of their Jewishness. The covenant sign of God saying, you are my special people, I will never abandon you. What is that covenant sign? Circumcision, Circumcision, right? Okay, so the third section in this section is they're proud because they're circumcised. That is, they are marked as the covenant people of the one true God. Let me go ahead and read now. Um, I'm just going to jump right into Romans 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, Paul says, and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in, who are in darkness, these are all good things, right? An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. All that's true. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Uh-oh. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you... So now he's moving to circumcision after having moved to the law. Hey, you boast in the law, but you break it. So that's, that's not something to be proud about. Now he's moving into circumcision, the last section here. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. So you see how he's hooking circumcision to obedience to the law? But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, so a Gentile, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew. Okay, this is heavy. This is not heavy, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it was heavy. It was shocking to the fellow Jews of his day. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And Paul says this very clearly, but a lot of Christians somehow miss this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay. So let me start with uh, uh, Keller. Something that Tim Keller says, okay? In this passage, Paul describes people who are both morally decent and religiously active. I'm taking this diagnosis, like I said, from Keller in his commentary. The moral decency is apparent through their attempt to keep the law. They take the law seriously. We see that in verses 17 through 24. The religious active, um, excuse, excuse me, the religiously active, I mistyped that. The religiously active is apparent through their being circumcised, verses 25 through 29. Tim Keller writes this. Let me quote him. These were the two factors the Jews relied on. Some people are religious, but not fastidiously moral. We know know people who are very religious, but they're not necessarily very moral people. Some people are scrupulously moral, but not religiously active. They're They're not particularly religious, but they're very, very moral. The Jews were both, and neither, Paul is saying here, neither being morally scrupulous or religiously very active, neither made them righteous. Um, Now, let me say this. The key to understanding this passage is the first verse that we read, something I missed until late into my study. Somebody read out, what's the first verse? It's a short, short verse. 
Okay, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. That, I think, is a real key to understanding this passage. What, what do I think in this is key here? Based on the argument that we just read, that I just read in this passage, that go, takes us all the way up to the beginning of, of chapter 3, um, where Paul is very much turning his guns on the Jews, your, your moral scrupulo- scrupulosity, your religiosity cannot help you when it comes to standing before God. What, what in verse 17 do I see as a key to help, helping us understand his argument here? Yep. Y'all said it. That's it. I think that's it. When he says, if you, who's he talking to? People who call themselves Jews and what? They rely on the law. Translation? What's he saying there? You rely on the law. Well, the Jews thought that they were, they distinguished themselves from the Gentiles primarily because they were the ones who were given the law. They were given the law. And Paul goes ahead in the next, in literally our next verses next, our first verses next week. He literally says that. And we'll, we'll, of course, talk about that next week. He says, you've been given. The, he's, oh, the Jews have no account then? He goes, of course not. As a Jew, he's like, of, cor- of course not. The Jews were given the very oracles of God. What other nation on planet Earth did God come down to rescue and then come and say, here is how to live? No one else. Everyone else is just groping in the dark, grabbing a hold of this truth and that truth, trying to figure out who God was. The Jews had God come to them, but not just for them, right? Incidentally. It was always what? God came to the Jews and chose them as special people. Why? So they could keep it to themselves? So they could share it. So they could be a light to the nations. They failed. And so, so Jesus comes along and does what none of us could do, what the Jews couldn't do, what none of us has done, right? And he, he breaks it wide open for everyone. Um, okay, so as Jordan said, they were given the law, unlike, and that was a special thing. But they thought that they made the grave error of thinking that because they were given the law, that was enough to secure their standing before a righteous God. And what, are, what does he mean when he says you rely on the law? Not just, hey, we were given the law. Amazing. What, else, what, is, what does you rely on the law mean? You follow it and you send it out. Okay, following the law isn't deadly. I think... Good guess. Keep he, going. Is he talking about, like, again, relying on the law, the fact that they, as a people, were given the oracles of God. They are proud and they are above others. And they think of themselves primarily as the people of the law, and that gives them standing. Yeah. We're, we were given the law. That makes us special enough to be okay, to be safe in, before a righteous God. What, what is Paul saying over and over again about the Jews and the law in this section here? What does he say? Does he say, well done for keeping it? No, not, really. no, not at all, right? <laughs> Quite the opposite, right? What does he say in this? in this section that we just read, about the Jews and the law. He doesn't say the law is bad. He says, you're given the, the repository of knowledge and truth, verse 20. The law is good, but what are they doing with the law? They have it. Is that enough? They were given it. They have it, but what are they doing with the law? They're breaking, They're breaking it. They're breaking it egregiously. Every single one of us. Don't just, again, we, we've already been, if you're not a Jew, you've already been lambasted by Paul, so don't be proud. I mean, but the Jews are the ones, if, they, if anyone had a reason to be proud, I guess, but the Old Testament speaks to the contrary. It was the Jews. And it, what, but he, what he's saying over and over again is it's not enough to have the law. It's not enough to be given the law. It's not even enough to be given and marked by God's covenant sign circumcision. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. First things first. Law first and then circumcision. Because the, law, the circumcision is part of the law. Right? 
so if you're breaking the law, and let me complete my sentence, it's not enough to be given the law. You have to keep the law. That's Paul's simple and main argument. You have to keep the law. Ergo, okay, and we'll get to this, like I said, secondly, it's not enough just to be circumcised, to be marked as God's covenant people if you're a lawbreaker. And he, so he attaches circumcision to keeping or breaking the law. And we'll get to that in a second, one thing at a time. Okay, let me, um, let's see. I was going to quote Keller again, but before I do. So relying on the law, I think that is a huge key to helping us understand what he's saying. They are relying, let me say it this way and plainly. When he says you rely on the law, Jews, he's saying you're relying on your own law keeping. You're relying on your own performance your own righteous performance in your ability to keep God's law. What he proceeds to do from that point onward is to say, you do not keep the law. You rely on keeping the law, but you break it constantly, right? You see, so he's, he's pulling the rug out from under them. Um, his argument will expand on this huge miscalculation by the Jews. They're relying on the law, on their keeping of the law, on their performance or their righteousness to save them. Huge mistake. It reminds me a little bit of what, a lot of it, of what Jesus does with the rich young ruler, who's Jewish, who's rich, who's young, and um, who is a ruler, so he has power. He's kind of got it all. And he is also scrupulous morally and religious. He's serious about keeping the law. And what happens? He comes up to Jesus and says what to Jesus? Go ahead. What do I need to do? Yeah, what must I good and, and what must I do? What what do I need to do to be saved? And before that, he says, good teacher. He addresses him, good teacher. And Jesus uh, Jesus really seizes on that word. Okay? Um, he, he says, Why do you call me good? And some people say, Well, Jesus is saying he isn't good. No, no, no. He's saying, You don't think that I am God. You have no idea that I'm literally the only son of the living God absolutely without sin. He's coming to Jesus thinking he's an esteemed human and only human teacher. And he's saying, knowing that and, know, and thinking that I do have sin, you're, you're still calling me good. In other words, what he's saying is your definition of good is way too low. And that's going to be your problem because you think that you're good enough to keep the law and you're not. Your goodness has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. So this guy's definition of good is way too low. Um, and, um, and so he really goes after this guy's perceived ability to keep the law. And in his interchange, he shows this guy that he, he's, actually, he's, kind of punk, he's kind of on a surface level, ostensibly keeping the laws. I've obeyed my parents. I've never stolen anything. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus goes, okay, perfect. Um, go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. And sell it and give what? Give it to the, he doesn't say sell it and burn it. He says sell it and give it to the poor. Use it well. Invest it, invest it well and come follow me. And what Jesus is doing is, and this is off track, but it's such a rich, he's saying, he's inviting this guy in. He's like, trade all that in. And I'm going to get to why he says that in a second. And I think most of you know, to come follow me. He's, he's off, he's, he's, He's offering, what he's inviting this guy into is what he invites each of us into. However much we have or however little we have, which is come and be with me. Come follow me, come be in a relationship with me. 
That is worth exchanging everything in the world for. And this man can't do it. Because what Jesus has told him to do, and Jesus is wise, he knows this. He knows that this man is an idolater, like all of us. This man's God is his stuff. It's what he can't give us. It's what he has a lot of. It, whatever we have a lot of can tend to be our God because we, we tend to rely on it. We have a lot of it. We tend to rely on it, whether it's my good looks or my intelligence or my social connections or my money or whatever it is. You can go down the list, right? Or people's good opinion of me. And so this guy has a ton of money, power, and he says, hey, just get rid of it. And the guy can't do it because that's what he's hooked his identity into. And God knows, Jesus knows, each of us in our idolatry, if we continue to hook who we are into not God, into anything but God, that thing will ultimately take us down. It will ultimately disappoint us. It will ultimately take us down. And Jesus doesn't want that for us. He wants us to hitch our lodestar to him. He wants to bring, he wants to bring you with him and to him. And he knows for that we have to see that our own, goodness, our own view of goodness is way too small and that we cannot stand on our own law performance. We're all idolaters. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of similarity here with, with me when I read what Paul's doing here with the Jews with what Jesus does with this particular Jew and with all of us. Um, let me uh, quote again, because um, see what that guy didn't realize. It. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep going. Let me quote Keller again on, on moralism, um, on relying on our good behavior, on our goodness, our performance to save us and to put us in good standing with God. He says this, he says, Moralism is extremely common and always has been. It's the biggest religion in the world today. It's the religion of people who compare themselves with others, who notice they're a lot more decent than other people, and conclude, if there is a God, he'll certainly accept me. I'm a good person. Um, I heard a stat the other day on, the, on a, yeah, it doesn't matter where. It was a reliable source um, that said something to the effect of that said, still 75% of Americans, when, uh, of the ones polled, believe that uh, they're in, in a heaven. And I can't remember if it was said, and that they will go there. I think that was also attached to that, but 75% of Americans still believe in heaven. 1% believe in hell. 1%. is what the stat said. Okay? So, so many people think that they're basically doing all right. Um, so few of us believe not only in hell, but that we deserve it and are going there if something doesn't change. And one of the things that Paul is trying to help us to see is that our own rebellion and evil and our own, whether it's, whether it's rebellion through irreligiosity or through religiosity and good behavior, relying on your good behavior can often be much more deadly than living a life of flagrant sin. Because if you're living a life of flagrant sin, it's... At some point, you're going to realize, man, I'm a drunk that's in a ditch, or I've been visiting prostitutes, or I'm, I'm, I'm an adulterer or murderer. I need help, right? It's very hard for a religious, moral person to see that you're in desperate straits. Paul's trying to help his fellow countrymen see that here. Um, back to Keller. How, how, I mistyped. How have we lapsed into Christian moralism as the source of our righteousness? So how have we lapsed into Christian moralism as the source of our righteousness? Whenever we brag about something we have done, when we rely on our own action, profession, or identity, we are living as functional moralists, says Keller. And by functional, Keller, what does Keller mean by functional? We're living as functional moralists. What does he mean by functional? That's the way we normally operate. 
Yeah, it's what we operate. It's not necessarily what we say we believe. We probably don't say we believe that. But based on, because it's the way that we live, it is what we believe actually, right? Um, we always act out what we truly believe. So let's look at, so at verses 21 and 22, Paul gets down and dirty. He says, okay, you say you rely on the law. You say you're keeping the law, but actually you're breaking it and you're doing that egregiously. Um, he mentions stealing, adultery, and robbing temples. And he's talking about Jews. He's talking about religious, moral Jews. Now, what one, one uh, teacher, John Stott, he said, some commentators think that all three sins, stealing, adultery, and robbing temples, so unlikely in Jewish leaders. He's talking about not just Jews, not just religious Jews, but like Jewish pastors, rabbis, Jewish religious leaders. So unlikely in Jewish leaders, like, are they really going to be committing adultery and robbing temples? They think that so unlikely that they suggest a non-literal interpretation. Um, sort of like one, along the lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Like, okay, I, I have never committed adultery, but according to Jesus' uh, you know, laser insights and diagnosis in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if I've lusted after a woman in my heart, I've got the germ of adultery. I've committed adultery before God. Now, is it, is it, it's even worse to actually commit adultery if I'm married with someone else. It, that's worse. The, that's not the point, though. The point isn't, hey, that's not any worse. The point is, God cares about our hearts, which we're going to drill down into every time, and this time, certainly. He cares about our hearts, and adultery starts in the heart. And he, when I look at a woman lustfully in my heart, before God, I stand guilty. When I hate a brother or sister from my heart, that's where murder starts. You never murder someone if hatred hasn't started in your heart first. And God cares about that. Well, we want to worship a God who doesn't care about our hearts. But then, of course not. But then that's a problem because my heart is absolutely corrupt before the living God. Yeah, Mom? He also said that envy, well, yeah, envy is equal to murder. Mm. Not just envy. We all envy. Everybody in this room envy. Sure. Covet someone else's things. If you say you have it, you're you shouldn't have that. I should. I deserve it. You yeah. don't. I wish you were dead. You know, those kind of things. I mean, we've all thought those sorts of things um, with people that we love, even. Um, our hearts are, we can't stand on our righteousness, right? So, so, so some people say they didn't literally, they weren't, these rabbis weren't literally committing adultery robbing temples, were they? So they suggest a non-literal interpretation. But Paul seems to have actions rather than thoughts in mind, Stott says. And Dodd quotes, he's a theologian, quotes Rabbi Jochanan ben Zakkai, a contemporary of Paul's, okay, so he lived at the same time as Paul, who bewailed, he, so he lived, this is a rabbi who lived at the same time as Paul, okay? Early, for, mid, mid-first century um, Palestine, who bewailed in his day the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife, and other evils. Now let me take you back to a passage in Jeremiah the prophet who's speaking to the Jewish people. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 9. He's saying to the Jews of his day, he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Of course he has, because God sees everything. That's our only hope, and, it's, and yet it's our, and it's our great, it's, a, it's big trouble for us too, right? The fact that God sees everything. Um, 
robbing pagan temples would have been doubly sinful because when a Jew would, went that, when he went into a pagan temple and would have taken things out of it and then sold them for profit, he would have become unclean, ritually unclean, but also, of course, he's stealing. Um, you know, as far as stealing, just, just going on record with, I tend to do this every week. I don't know why I, I like to bury myself, but, um, but I, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor who has a new heart. I have a, which we'll get to in a second, has, I have a circumcised heart. I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. And yet, I, I yesterday almost stole something, and today thought about stealing something. So yesterday, there were, that's why when I came and saw those candies today, I was like, oh, are those ours? Because there was candy, if you were here yesterday and went back here, there was a big table. They hadn't done a cleanup from last weekend, and there was a big thing of candy kind of like that. And I was like, oh, man, that's, I wonder what the kids are going to do about all this candy that's on this table. And it was early, early in the morning before any of y'all got here. And, and so, and then I was walking past it and there was a big basket of mints, like of the Lifesaver white sort of breath mints. And as a pastor, I like to try to keep, I think I have some in my pocket right now. Yeah, I have some, some tiny little Altoids or whatever. I try to keep mints in my pocket, like, cause you know, we take communion and then people come up and pray with me. I'm like, man, I need to have some fresh breath here. And so um, every pastor has mints in his pocket. And so I saw that and my first impulse was like, oh, grab a mint. And then I felt like the Holy Spirit went, not yours. And I was like, oh, you're right. That would be. And even after that, I was like, it's a mint, you know? So I definitely thought about stealing that mint. Not a big deal, but it is stealing. It wasn't mine. And then, um, again, today, something happened where I basically was, and again, I was sort of arrested in my thoughts, but I was, I was going to pay for something that I didn't want to pay for. It was coffee and a, and a croissant in the morning. And I thought about asking Chase to join me because then we could have, so every once in a while we'll have like a little meeting and we could have classed it as a church meeting. I could have used the church card. And that thought went through my head. And I was like, dang. You know, and then, and then I did some more stuff like that. And so I'm just saying it's not hard at all for me as a pastor to believe that Paul's calling out Jewish rabbis who are proud of their own law keeping that are stealing. Not at all, because I do it. Or think about it, and I have before, certainly. Um, adultery, that's easy too. We've already talked about it. But even literal adultery, pastors, I don't think that's hard for any of us to... We, we hear about it, unfortunately, a lot. Um, there was a past, the pastor of the fastest-growing church in Houston, unfortunately, um, a year plus ago, uh, ran off with another woman. And uh, it's just so sad. It wrecked the church. I think they're doing fine now, but it was just an absolute meltdown, an absolute disaster. Hurt so many people. Hurt his family. He's married to that other woman now. Um, so, and then there's adultery of the heart, of which I'm thoroughly guilty. I and every, every other single man I know. Um, so the law, here's, here's the salient point that's simple, but a bone breaker that Paul's making here. The, the law only helps if you keep it. Hey, all of it. All of it. We're going to get into that. And none of us keeps it. Tom Schreiner says this. He says, the law doesn't guarantee God's favor. I'm going to say that again. Having the law, as we talked about at the beginning, the, having the law, the law doesn't guarantee God's favor, for it was given to be obeyed. And transgression of the law strips the law of any salvific advantage. I'm going to say it again for the sake of clarity. Paul is saying, hey, Jews, you're proud that you have the law and you're proud because you're relying on the law. You're, re- you're relying on your own keeping and performance of the law. And, and actually, you're breaking it egregiously in so many ways. And so not only is it not something that you should be proud about, it's something you should be ashamed of. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, 
let me say this, only doing the law counts with God. Just knowing it not only does not count for credit with God, it counts against us, as I just said. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another British preacher, he, said, he says this. He says, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read, you know so much of the point of the Bible is to convict us of our sin and, help us, and cause us to flee to the one who bore our sins on the cross. To, so much of the Bible is not for me to feel good about myself. It's for me to see what a sinner I am and to run to the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. Do you know that that's so much of the point of the scriptures? That, that's me. That's not Martin Lloyd-Jones. Okay, let me get back to Martin Lloyd-Jones. As you read, he says, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Right now, as we're reading about this, this passage about the Jews, we should be saying that. Allow the scriptures to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous, he says. Why? There's Paul's right there. I'll finish with one more sentence from him, but now I'm not going to finish the lesson. Don't get too excited. I'm going to finish his quote. Um, why does he say, otherwise, if you don't allow the scriptures to search you, it can be very dangerous? What does he mean by that? Would you be like the Jew who relies on the law? Exactly. You'd be relying on the Bible. I, 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 am, I won the Bible drill. I memorized all the verses. I got a gold star in Sunday school. Going to Sunday school and memorizing verses is amazing. Being among the saints and learning about the Lord and being in his word is a wonderful blessing. But if it makes us proud, if it makes us proud, and we're not saying, where am I in this? How do I need a Savior? If we're simply building up knowledge and understanding and not being convicted by a sense of our own sin and need for a great Savior, it's very dangerous because of what Jordan just said, because of what Paul is saying to the Jews. We can get proud. Rather than The gospel should deeply humble us. I am such a sinner. I don't deserve the love of God, but in his mercy, through what God the Father has done in sending his own son for me, he has saved me through no good of my own. That is deeply, deeply humbling. And it is, a, it is a message that should make us want to go share with every person we encounter. The more entangled by sin, the better. Because, man, have I got good news for you. But if it's just, oh, I keep all these things and I'm really good, we're going to look down our noses at everybody and we're going to be inoculated against thinking we need God's favor. Very dangerous. He, said, he finishes with this. He says, there's a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you. If you do not apply it to yourself. Verse 23 summarizes Paul's point. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Verse 24 shows one consequence that turns the screw. Not only are you Jews no better than the Gentiles, but you make them worse. You make the Gentiles worse sinners by helping them blaspheme, by living in a way that makes them think their God and his word must be terrible because look how they live. Your lives encourage not the chaste behavior of the Gentiles around you, but their blasphemy. You sin. I mean, can we relate in the way that Christians so often are stumbling blocks for people that don't follow the living God through his word? I mean, so often. It's easy. It's very easy to, uh, to relate to this. Um, you sin and your sins make others who don't know God to sin more. It could not get worse for the Jews. They who have the law and the rest of the world without the law all stand guilty before God. Thus, in at least two ways... Not only are the Jews no better than the Gentiles, they're worse. One, unlike the Gentiles, the Jews have God's law telling them what to do, and they don't do it. And two, as lawbreakers, they encourage those who don't have the law to sin more than they would have otherwise. Right? By, by, sh- by showing the world 
This is what God's like, apparently, our behavior. Look at us, and then you're going to see what God's like. No. No. Is God an adulterer? Is God a thief? Is God a hypocrite? Is God proud? No, 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 and no. In short, verse 23, you boast in the law, but break it. And then verse 24, your law-breaking leads the Gentiles not to holiness, but to greater sin. Some commentators point to the exile as an outstanding historical example of this syndrome. God just says, you know what? You haven't, you've broken my law so egregiously, even though I've given you warning after warning for centuries. And he, he exiles them, but he remains their God and he brings them back, right? And all the world, meanwhile, is going, what the heck, you know? Um, look at these people that are uh, supposed, supposed to be God's people and they're living like this. And then they, they get exiled by the, by the Babylonians out of their land. And it's such a poor reflection on God. And yet, in his amazing power and wisdom and goodness and mercy, through the exile and through bringing... What, what people has been completely pulled out of their land and then brought back to their land? I don't know of any people but the Jews. And so even, God even uses this evil to, to showcase his goodness and his power um, more, than, more than he would have. Um, the next section, this last section of our text, verses 25 through 29, Paul turns to one aspect of the law, circumcision, right? This was the physical covenant sign of the Jews as God's special chosen people. Right away, Paul makes his point. In verse 25, he couples circumcision to what? To the law. That's right. He couples it to obedience to the law. Because it is, what is circumcision? It's an aspect of the Law, as well as being a covenant sign, right? Um, it was definitely a crucial part of the law. This was, so how can you be a, an egregious lawbreaker and be proud about the circumcision? It doesn't make sense, right? That's what he's saying. This was a physical covenant sign of the, of the uh, excuse me, I've already said that. Um, if you don't keep the law, circumcision is worthless, is what he says, very clearly. Ergo, Jewish circumcision is worthless. Why? Because they don't keep the law. Because they don't keep the law, right? You can't break the law and think a circumcised, I'm going to say it, penis. Okay, we all know what that is. That's what circumcision involves. Okay, only boys were circumcised. You can't break the law and think that a circumcised penis will save you before a God of perfectly righteous judgment. God is not a fool. To think otherwise is to treat him like one. It's like wearing a cross, let me bring it home, and calling yourself a Christian and not trusting Jesus or following him. But I'm covered because I wear a cross. No, Paul says, you're not. Probably people look at the way you live and think you're a Christian because of that cross around your neck or on your bumper or in your house. And they think that God is like your life, full of sin, immoral, ugly. Thus they blaspheme God because of you. So you are more guilty, and I am more guilty, right, than they are in this way at least, than the Gentiles, I mean, than those that don't, don't believe in don't follow Jesus. Don't claim to follow Jesus. More precisely, it would be exactly equivalent. Paul's example of circumcision, of breaking the law, but saying, yeah, but we're circumcised, we're good, um, would be exactly equivalent to the person who's been baptized, is a church member, and regularly takes communion, but does not have a circumcised heart. That's what Paul ends with, right? All the outward signs of the new covenant have been applied to this person, except for the one that actually saves, a cut heart. A cut heart. Not a cut penis. A cut heart. Okay? A cut heart. Only the Spirit can apply this. Who can cut your heart? 
Who can give you a new heart? Who can take your heart of stone that rebels against God and wants to be king on your throne and everyone else to serve you? That's, that's, my, that's my hard heart. That's my man of flesh. That's my old man every time. Who can take that heart and replace it with a new heart that's soft and that delights in God and wants to serve him? and is grieved, truly grieved by sin. Not because you're going to get punished, but because you know that it put your Savior there. Who, who can do that? Can I do that? No, I can't. It, that is something only the Holy Spirit, the living God, can accomplish. Only Christ can accomplish it, and only faith, the open hand, can receive it. Do you see how Paul's driving toward you cannot save yourself through law performance? It is the good news that, of what God has done outside of you but for you is received in one way with the open hand of faith someone else else's works in your place do you see how what good news this is now that we've been held under a little bit we are all born with an old heart one hard towards god we need a new heart one not of stone but of flesh one not hard but soft only god can do this he is the almighty heart surgeon ask him to do it in jesus name it is why he sent his son um, somebody quote John 3.16 for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but will have everlasting, will have everlasting life. Our destination in our own standing, in our own performance, in our own rebellion, in our own sin is perishing forever. Not just dying and breathing our last but continually, continuing to be eternally given over and unraveled forever forever. But rather than that, what God has offered to us through his own son, Jesus, is life that never ends. So how to, and I'm getting a little bit off course here, but we're kind of preaching the gospel here. How do I who deserve perishing get life? How does that work? Where does the perishing go? God's just. Does it just vanish like magic? The perishing goes on Jesus. Who was without sin. To be sin. Jesus, in this sense, in a real sense, I'm leaning on John 3.16 here, eternally, somehow, in the, in the miracle of, of God's sovereignty, everything you would have taken, he eternally, he took what you deserved, an eternal undoing, an eternal unraveling, an eternal, um, an eternal um, experience of being undone under the just wrath of God. Jesus took that, that I deserve and that you deserve, that we deserve. He eternally perished in our place, and he who is life, and who had earned as a man through his perfect obedience from the heart to the Father, everlasting life and bliss and happiness and joy and peace, he gave that to you. He gives that to anyone who, who trusts in him. He gives that to us and he takes our perishing. And that is what Martin Luther, the great theologian and reformer, called the great exchange. The great exchange. And faith receives it. Jesus took and paid for what we ought to pay for. Right? So because God is just. And we'll get to all that much more in living color in a couple weeks when Paul just busts out with this glorious gospel. Um, it's why, it's why he sent his son. It's what Jesus came to do. It's all in the Old Testament, though, right? It's all, it's all, it was all forecast. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. 
actually says, and I didn't write down the reference, I don't have it here, but Ezekiel 36 is one of the clear places where the prophet, hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus came, says, there's going to come a day when I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is the true circumcision that the circumcision of the private part always pointed to. God never intended through circumcision of the private part to say, oh, this saves you. He always meant for it to show, to point to a deeper reality. We need a new heart. We need a cut heart. We need, we need something that we can't do. No law performance of mine can do it. Only God can do it. Well, you said later that Abraham's heart was already, so to speak, cut before he was circumcised. That's right. He says that in, Genesis, in, Genesis, in Romans 4, which we'll get to soon, uh, in about three weeks. Jeremiah 31 also talks about this new covenant that Jesus will bring us into. What do we say every, every week in communion? This is the new covenant in my blood. Sound like circumcision? We're going we're gonna to finish with that. Jesus was circumcised for us. And I'll, and I'll get to that. I'll, I'll talk about what I mean there. Um, he became, no surprise, the fulfillment of what circumcision always was supposed to point to. Um, by being cut, cut and cast off. And bloodied. So that we could be brought in. And I'll finish with that. But... Um, Jeremiah 31 also talks about this new covenant. He says, there is coming a day when I will, I will, um, here, in fact, I'm just going to read it. Jeremiah. Bible drill. All right. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, right? I mean, what Paul's saying here, it's the, it's the history of the whole Old Testament. The Jews continually egregiously breaking God's law. <clears throat> Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So does God just in a transactional relationship with us? No, he's, he's in a, he's, he's, be, he's betrothed us to him. He cares an, as much about us as a husband about a wife, but more. He is deeply and personally wounded and grieved by our sin because of his great love for us and because he sees it destroying us. That's why he cares. That's why he must do something. Verse 33, but this is the covenant, excuse me, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Who can do that? Only God. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this... (laughs) This true circumcision was talked about centuries before Jesus came along. It was the real, the Jews that were truly understanding the scriptures had to understand this is what circumcision meant. It wasn't just getting, it wasn't just getting cut in the privates as a boy. And then oh, I got the mark on my flesh. I'm good. No, 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 no. It was a much, it was pointing to a much deeper thing. Um, verse 26, better to not be circumcised, Paul says, and keep God's law. So you're not a Jew and you're keeping God's law. It's better for you than to be circumcised as a Jew and not keep his law. Not only does law-breaking nullify the value of circumcision, law-keeping counts as circumcision. Yep, and this is exactly what Paul says in verse 26. Yes? When he's talking about the man who is uncircumcised keeping the mm-hmm. of the law, is he talking about Gentile Christians? You know, I didn't do too many deep dives into too many commentaries today, but... So I, I remember somebody's talking about entertaining that idea. Yeah, he could be. I read that in John Murray. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I have Murray on my desk and I didn't look at him today. Probably because I thought I was going to die today. So it's amazing I'm here. <laughs> it was not a good day, but here I am. Um, 
Yes, I think that I think that could be right. And John Murray is always someone to look to. Um, Paul is merely stating in language involving Jewish law and the Jewish sign of the covenant, circumcision, what Jesus does in his parable of the Good Samaritan. Who kept the law? Love your neighbor as yourself in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan? Yeah, the non-Jew. Everybody, the other three people were Jews. Religious Jews, just like the ones Paul's railing against here. Pastors, Levites, sorry? The ones that was hating the most, the Samaritans. Oh yeah, Samaritans were, and I'm going to get to that, exactly. So they were like, um, yeah, they, they had some of the law, but then they said, we know the true way, but they really, and Jesus even said to the Samaritan woman, right before revealing himself to her, he said, the Jews are the ones that have the way of salvation, you know, not, not the Samaritans. Um, today, the equivalent of this today would be the Muslim, uh, a monotheistic heresy of the faith of Israel with its own scriptures, an accretion and perversion of the Judeo-Christian scriptures, right? So they believe a lot of things, but then they take some things and go, not this, not that. You know, Jesus isn't fully God. He's not the true, God doesn't have a son, and he didn't actually die on the cross. The two things necessary for us to be saved, you can take everything else, just not those things. You think, that, you think those are important? You know, of course Satan knows that. He, I'll give you everything. You just can't believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he actually died on a cross for you. How important do you think those things are? Satan's a genius. Essential. Right? essential. They're essential. Okay, so the, the equivalent absolutely of the Samaritan today would be the good Muslim. Okay? Um, so that, if that helps bring it home some. All right? Not, uh, not the Jews, or we could read not the Christian. Thus, it doesn't matter what you call yourself or even what law you have. It matters what you do, Paul's saying. It matters how you live. And with this standard, we all fall short. And Paul's going to hammer this nail firmly into the coffin in, three, in chapter 3, 1 through 20 next week. Um, our lives testify against us before a righteous God. And this casts us ahead to Romans three twenty three. Tim Keller, brief quote. He says, in effect, Paul says in verses 25 through 27 that it is better to be an unbaptized believer. Okay, it is better to be an unbaptized believer than a baptized non-believer and that both are possible. Okay, I have this long quote by Douglas Moo, and I'm looking at it to see if I need to read it. Um, Okay, I'm not going to read it. Um, Who is a Jew? A true Jew. Let's get into the last few verses that Paul talks about here, the ones that would be mind-blowing, absolutely scandalous to the Jews of the day. Who is a Jew, a true Jew? I'm thinking about verses 28, 29. One descended physically from Abraham. Is that a true Jew according to what Paul says here? Nope, absolutely not. According to a plain reading of what he's saying, he is a super Jew. Paul is a super Jew. He's a Jew. He has no slight against the Jews. He's about to pick that up in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He's going to tell you, no, the Jews, and he says it again in chapter 9. The Jews have this amazing inheritance. Very special. Okay, but when you're a lawbreaker, you stand on, the, on, on par with every other single person on the face of the planet. So, that, so he says, a true Jew is not one that's descended physically from Abraham. Rather, okay, so is, Jew, is being Jewish an ethnicity? No. no, it can't be. Paul is asking this. He's, again, he's ethnically Jewish. Is Jewishness an ethnicity? No, Judaism is not ethnic. It is spiritual. A Jew is not physically descended from Abraham, but what? Spiritually, yeah. Spiritual descendancy from Abraham through faith. 
in God's word, in God's promise that he can accomplish what he says he can accomplish, that he can save us, that he can, he can declare us right with him. Not our own behavior, not what we're born into, not our own physicality, not our own performance. Okay? This isn't a new thing. Paul's just bringing out what's been in the Old Testament all along that Jesus brings to the fore. Okay? Um, in short, so a Jew is a person who trusts in God's saving promise, just as Abram did. In short, a Jew cannot be discerned physically from outside features. You have to discern a Jew by looking at his heart. Heart. That's what Paul's saying. The true Jews are the people of the cut heart, the circumcised heart, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. This should lead every reader of Romans to the question, but how? How do you get a cut heart, spiritually cut? Not, re- not cut with a scalpel, with a surgeon's knife, right? But the divine surgeon. I can circumcise my son or myself. I can do that. I'm talking about me, Taylor. I can, I can try to keep outwardly, I can try to keep or outwardly observe the law. I can do those things. I can try. But I cannot circumcise my heart. That's right. Is that question the same question, um, or functionally the same question as what Nicodemus asked Jesus? Like, yeah. How do I have a heart? How do I be born again? And literally, and then that's in my next paragraph. That's great. No, not that way. So that's, I mean, you're absolutely dead on. Then with the spirit. Dead on. And that's, and you know, when Jesus mentions in John 3, you have to be born again, Paul's talking in blood language. Jesus is talking, and I'll say this in a second. Jesus is talking in water language, but he's going back to Ezekiel 36. Have you not been taught this as a teacher of Israel? And, he, of course, he's implying, you should know the scriptures. The scriptures speak of this, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. And Ezekiel 36 is one of the places that, that talk about this, um, that he's certainly, almost certainly referencing in Jeremiah 31. So, exactly, that's, that's exactly right. So, I cannot circumcise my heart. That's right, you can't, bravo. That's exactly what Paul, the place Paul wants to get you to get to. The dead end of all dead ends. God, has, God wants to wedge us through Paul right into a corner that we can't escape from, where there's no turning, there's no, there's no saving myself. I'm utterly, by my own behavior, damned. Jew or Gentile, I've painted myself utterly into a corner. I cannot, the one, one way of salvation is something I can't do. That's right. That's exactly right. It reminds me, being in this dead end where I can't save myself reminds me of lots of things in the Old Testament, and one of them is Exodus 14. Right? And what happens in Exodus 14? Right before, Exodus 15 is the parting of the Red Sea. The Passover? No. So the Passover's happened. It's that chapter between the Passover and the... Why'd you lead us out here? Yeah, exactly. So Exodus 14 is almost comic because (laughs) it literally says that God tells Moses, go here and then go here. He, he tells them exactly where to go, and what he's doing is, you're thinking he's leading them to a, a way of freedom. He actually leads them to a way where they're literally wedged in, but on one side is the Red Sea. You can't cross a sea without boats. You know, you just got pots on your back and a bunch of kids, and you just left Egypt. And then he, the Red Sea's on this side, and they turn around, and Pharaoh's coming with the most advanced army in the Middle East on the other side, because he's changed his mind. And God's like, perfect. And then they start whining which I would have done, which I've done many times, and I'll do again. So I'm not pointing fingers, but they start crying out, why did you bring us here to die? Are you kidding me? And Moses starts crying out to God, what do I do, what do I do? And God says, uh, yeah, he says, why are you sitting here calling out to me? He says, stretch out your hand. 
And he, say, he says, the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. All you have to do is be still and watch me save you by myself. Just like he did in Egypt. No help from Israel. No help at all. Completely and utterly walks them through what should be death, a sea, with the army charging and wanting to kill them on the other side, completely single-handedly saves them, right? And that's exactly what God wants us to see, is that we can't save ourselves, so he is going to do it completely for us, and he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. You talk about parting the waters of death. Jesus did it. He, he was utterly submerged under the death of the wrath of God that we deserve so that we, so that that price could be paid, but not by us, by him, so that we could get his life and we could get his favor and we could get his freedom and peace. That is, that is something that the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea was meant to picture. Only God can save us. And until we get to that place, honestly, until we get to the place where we see only you can do it, Lord, then we honestly have no use for God. But once we get to that place, the gospel becomes everything for us. And that's why Paul's doing this to us. He finishes this section with one more bombshell regarding circumcision. It's the sort of coup de grace, to use a French term. I, my sister, my French sister is here, and I don't know if I said it right, um, but it's, it means the finishing stroke, right? The coup de grace. Um, the sort of, uh, say, it, say it, Laurent, say it for us. Coup de grace. Okay, so I didn't say it right. All right. Um, the circumcision of the skin isn't the real circumcision anyway, right? A cut private part counts for nothing if it doesn't point to a cut that's deeper and just as real, though invisible. We've talked about this, namely the circumcision of the heart. Um, and, I, and I basically wrote this, I wrote this after, uh, before what I just read, so it's, it's, it's repetitive, but I, did, I do have in this section um, the bit about Nicodemus. And so that's kind of why I was... What, what Paul says in terms of blood, Jesus speaks of with Nicodemus in terms of, of water and the wind of the Spirit. We have to be born again. The point of Paul and the point of Jesus is the same. To be in God's kingdom, you have to be born again. You have to be born a second time. And the thing about being born is you don't have any say in it. You can't do it. The first time you were born, who, who chose to be born? You know, how much did you have to do with it? How much, how much credit can you take for being born? Same the second time. It's all of God. And yet he leaves for us to go, I need, I need rescue. I can't save myself. I need to be redone. I need to be reborn. And that's what exactly what Jesus came to do. Um, to be in God's kingdom, we have to be born a second time. Um, and this only happens in one way. It happens by faith, not by works, not by keeping of the law, but by faith. Um, but the law points to this. It points to our need to place our confidence in the one who kept the law for us because we cannot do it and we haven't done it. But this is all coming. It's all coming in Romans uh, 3.21. And um, there are a bunch of, well, I, I listed out a few, a few uh, passages where um, circumcision and law keeping are both about one thing, the heart. We're not going to read those. But let me just finish with this. The true purpose of circumcision was to show a people who needed, who knew that they needed new hearts and trusted a God who could and would give them new hearts. Circumcision, like its New Testament counterpart, baptism, which we see that, that equation in Colossians 2, is a picture of the cross. So these three pictures, circumcision, baptism, and the cross, all show us that we cannot keep the law 
and so deserve the punishment of lawbreakers. Death, whether by blood, blood drained out of you. That's what happens when, you know, when blood drains out of you, what happens to you? You die. You die. Or, and, and what is circumcision? It's literally applying blood, bloody cutting, to the source of life. It's applying death to life. You talk about counterintuitive. God's saying, this is going to be the mark of you being my people, is that I'm going to, I'm going to apply death to the place of life. I'm going to bring life out of death, right? And I'm going to do it through blood. And I'm going to do it through casting something off that is, that is life-giving, right? Um, so death, whether by blood or water, being held under. So just like circumcision is a picture of death, being held. Baptism is basically a picture of being held under the water until you die. But something new comes. The, the old must go, whether through blood or through water. Um, so death, whether by blood or water, is the price we must pay, or that must be paid for us if we're to live. In his death, Keller reminds us, Jesus was truly circumcised. I'm not talking about having his penis cut. He was as an eight-year-old, eight-day-old boy, because he, according to the law, but literally on the cross, he fulfills, he was baptized under the water of God's wrath for us. He was submerged in eternal death for us. He was cut off and cast aside, like the scapegoat in the wilderness in Leviticus, where all the curses were placed on this scapegoat, and he was, let, he was made to run off into the desert wilds to die. That's, Jesus comes along and he fulfills all these things by in our place taking the law-breaking and the sin and the wrath of God that we deserve for those things on himself. Um, all so that those who look to him in faith could not be cast off, but rather the opposite, brought in. Brought in, and I finish here, guys. Brought into the wide and loving and warm and all-forgiving and pleased embrace of the Father. It's, it's what all of us who have, all of us have daddy wounds. It's what all of us were made for. It's what Jesus came to bring us into fully. He, by rights, had it. He let it go and took our sin and our punishment on himself so that he could give us that status as a favored and a beloved son. And that's, of course, what Jesus, the story he tells in the prodigal son, but he's the one who goes and gets us and brings us home. Um, let me, let me um, just close this in some prayer and then we can, we can have some Q&A. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul who just so assiduously uh, 2,000 years ago uh, held us under the water, showing us that we, to really appreciate um, how we need a righteousness that is not our own from the outside applied to us and received by faith, we, we have to first have every hope of our own righteousness devastated. Lord, would you do it? Would you remove any false hope that we have so that we can place our hope in that which will never fail us, Jesus Christ, who bore your wrath in our place and who offers us his perfect righteousness by faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, let's keep, let's keep going with questions. Um, and then we'll finish our time at 9. We have 15 full minutes. So, Oh, and Rachel, uh, I brought this to show you something afterwards. Yeah. I'm glad you came. I was like, where's Rachel? All right, questions. I know you have them.
Willie, how's your shoulder? It's good now. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk later. Glad you're here. I love that you're in a, top, a tank top right now. Of course, it makes sense. But it's like 40 degrees outside. Willie's in a tank. All right, questions. Come on. Hit me. Oh, is there any uh, hot cocoa left? Oh, yeah. Come on. No, sorry. Will I, the bartender. I realized. Let's go. That's not a question. That is a question, actually. That's, a, that's an easy question to open up the night. What else? What's, what do we got? Something that, hey, it could be something you wrote down. Ask it. It could be something that surprised you. It could be something that's challenging you or a new insight or something that bothers you or that wasn't addressed. Yeah. I'm going to say, again, I appreciate your honesty all the time. You always share with us. Uh, how quickly can we, when we are sinning, like you were saying, you know, how quickly can we turn back and say, Lord, forgive me for even thinking? Can't do it too quickly. I would say, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. I would say, it's a but grace. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank, remind me if I don't. For the sake of the recording, to always try to repeat the question. Thank you so much, Will. No, that's great. Thank you. I know what Jesus does with lukewarm stuff, but not me. I'm not Jesus. So. Mm. And he wasn't talking about cocoa anyway. Um, so the question was, how, a great question. How can we, how quickly when we are convicted of our sin, can we turn back to Jesus and repent and say, Lord, I'm so sorry, forgive me. Is that fair? Is that a fair restatement? Um, Except for the accent. I can't, redu- I can't duplicate that, that's, um, sadly. Um, no, that's a great question. The answer is that I would give is you can't do it too quickly enough. And I think that a couple, a couple things, and I'd love to open it up to other comments about that question because there's lots of insights here at this table. Um, one is Satan, one of his greatest, he's an accuser. One of his greatest um, things that he'll do, one of his greatest tactics is to try to convince you that what you've done is too bad or you need to wait a little bit that's the enemy every time because the thing that it's a great the second thing i'll say is it's a grace because he hates you and he knows why would he lie like that because he knows the best thing you can possibly do in that moment in the moment of your sin right after you sin is to run to jesus he knows that and so he wants to that to not happen and so, hey, just take some time, wait a little bit, as if the logic of, hey, it's going to get better in God's eyes if you just wait, as if that holds up. But we don't, we don't really think that when we're being accused by the enemy. The, uh, the second thing that I'll say is that it's such a grace. It's an absolute grace. Anytime that you see your sin, that's a grace. Hitler thought he was a great guy. He thought killing millions of Jews was a good thing. That's the thing about the more evil we are, the more great we think we are. It's a sign of godliness. It's a sign of mercy from God Almighty. It's a miracle to see I'm, I've sinned. That's why this whole section is such a mercy because it's like, I'm a sinner. Guess what? Now you know you need a savior and you have one in Christ. So when you see your sin, it's a mercy from God. Act on it and run to him. The last thing I'll say thoroughly is that, and then I want to open it up to any other comments about this question and then more questions, is that, I think we talked about it before, so I will, I'll be very brief, but the two incidents that I love so much in the Gospels where, does anyone remember how, um, how Jesus calls Peter, the first incident they have together? In, it's in Luke chapter 5, Peter's fishing. Yeah, yeah, so he comes, 
along, and Peter, Peter's a, a professional fisherman. It's what he does. And the short version, they fished all night, caught nothing, and Jesus says, hey, cast the net on the other side of the boat. Yeah. What? That makes no sense. But he goes, okay, I'll do it. And then, of course, they haul in this huge... So Peter realizes this is not just a man. I'm not sure who, but this is not just a man. And he, what is Peter's reaction? Okay, so he falls down, and what does he say to Jesus? Yeah, he says, I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. He realizes his own sin, and his reaction is, get as far away from me as possible, Jesus. Now, here's what I, here's what I love. John... The way John ends his gospel, that's Luke 5. John 21, John is, he's, he doesn't ever mention Luke 5, but John's a master of illusion. So he's constantly in this last, in this interaction to finish his gospel, John 21. He's pulling from Peter's first meeting with Jesus. There's a second meeting, and it's after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, and the, after the crucifixion and resurrection, what has Peter just done three times with Jesus? He's just denied, he, despite his vehement protestations. I will never, I will never, I will never ever deny you. Everyone else may run. I will never. And he does it. Now he has zero confidence. Lowest, his confidence in himself, in his own law keeping, in his own good behavior is at his lowest ebb. Ever. He realizes that he's more of a sinner now than he ever did in Luke chapter 5. Guarantee. Same thing. Jesus on the shore, the resurrected Christ. Peter's still processing all that. And not even sure if he's still a disciple, probably. And he's, yeah, he's, he's throwing, he's fishing all night. Again, nothing's been caught. John sets it up. And then Jesus says, hey, children, throw it on the other side. Same thing. He throws it on the other side. Peter's a little bit dense sometimes, and so he doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And so he throws it on the other side. They pull in 153 fish. John counts them later. And, and John leans over and goes, it's the Lord. Peter hadn't gotten it yet. Same interaction. And what does Peter do? He realizes his sin more than ever. What does he do this time? Jumps out of the boat. Puts his coat on for some reason. It's just because of the way it happened. He's probably stripped down maybe into the buff, by the way. He could have been stripped down. He's like, I need, I'm going to a meeting. I need a coat. He puts on his, his garment, and he jumps in the water. Even though they're probably about 100 yards from shore, he can't wait. My point is this. He realizes now, I'm, I, I'm more sinful than I ever thought I was, and the best place I can possibly be is as close to Jesus as possible because that is a friend of sinners. That is a mighty Savior who died on the cross for my denying him, for my sin, and I gotta be close to him. And he does make him breakfast by the sea. I'm, I think of the words of a, guy, a teacher who said, what do you do with a God who rather than squishing you, um, squishing you to jelly and putting you on his toast after you deny him three times and leave him to be crucified on a Roman cross, fixes you breakfast by the sea. You know, what a great... Um, you get as close to him as you can. Yeah. That's what you do. So that's a great... Uh, any, anything else on that? Any other comments on Laurence's great question? Or any other questions? Well, I mean, thinking about that, right, so like we're, we're hearing over and over again in the here, by the works of the law, no man is justified. Or works of flesh, no one is justified, right? So then we as Christians, we read... Like verse 25, he says, Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Mm-hmm. So the analog for us, right? Um, if you've been baptized, yeah. if you are a, mem- a covenant member of a church, right. 
That is great stuff. A, that is indeed a value. Yeah. If you're looking for it to save you. If you obey the law. That stuff. doesn't quite work because we know that we can't obey the law. Right? Yes. Perfectly. In the same way. They thought they could. They thought they could. We they were relying on the law. Right. So if the you're, analog would be like what you're saying. That in the sense that if we realize, you know, to the extent we're aware of our own inability to keep the law, we, if we turn to, we have to turn to the Savior. Oh, of course. And and that's how our, our the signs that we have now uh, have value. Yes, for sure. And I, yes, I think that's the mark of a believer is you're the quickest to repent. You live, I mean, what did Martin Luther say? He said the Christian life, it was the first, you know, his, 90, his famous 95 theses, I've been to the door, maybe you have too, at Wittenberg, Germany, where he nails his 95 theses. They were in Latin, by the way, so I couldn't have read them. But um, they were translated later into German and other languages. And the first of the 95 theses, number one, was the Christian life ought to be one of continual repentance. Not the life of the dirty pagan. The life of the Christian. Because the life of the Christian, even repenting of your good works, because they're like filthy rat. If you're relying on anything you're doing for your own standing before God, no, he wants a heart of continually saying, I'm... You are my righteousness. You are my safe place. You are my sin bearer. You are my life. And you have done everything necessary to bring me back into the heart of God. Everything. And so repenting of all those things that we rely on, people's good opinion, our own wealth, our social connections, our intelligence, my, our beauty, whatever it is that we're, I'm, I'm repenting of that constantly. Because I'm constantly, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. I love that line. Because I'm just like, I'm just like a, a ship drifting and like, I wake up in the morning and just run to God because I'm like, I've already, I can tell in the night, I've already started to drift, you know? And so, yes. And I also think, though, to challenge that a little bit, Jordan, that an analog, which is insightful comment, um, I do think, to be fair, an analog can, can still be uh, the person who believes that they, because the, these people weren't, according to Paul, they weren't true Jews. In other words, you're not a true Jew if you haven't been spiritually circumcised. You aren't a true Jew if you're not living a life of faith. If you're relying on the law and on physical circumcision to say, I'm a Jew, and on your, on your ethnicity, I'm a Jew, you're not a Jew. And so I think that the person who says, I go to church, I've been baptized, I've taken communion, I take communion every week or every month or every year or whatever it is, and I know the Bible and I, and I have the whole thing memorized or whatever, I win Bible drills, but you don't have a circumcised heart, and you're not trusting in Jesus, but rather you're trusting in what you've done and what you're a part of and, and your own obedience. I mean, we can do it. People that profess to be Christians, they're in the church. They're by the millions across the planet uh, and do, saying those sorts of things, not relying on him, not living a life of faith, but rather trusting in my own. And, and I, so I think that is also, to be fair, an analog. Now, for the true Christian, yes, what you said is a good, a, a good analog. But... Well, no, that's good. Good insight. Any, what else? What else? We got. We got a few minutes. Let's milk it. We got four minutes. <laughs> what else? You gotta sing the hymn. Oh, we gotta sing the hymn. Okay, one more question then hymn. I think I figured we'd all be more ready to sing the hymn after um, this warm up. I need. I need a hymn sheet though. Do we have any hymn sheets left? No. I can look on with John. I do have a question. Yeah. I don't know if it's God's name is blasphemed in the world because of our sin. Yes. It's just a reality. It just happens. 
can you speak pastorally to the moment, both individually, but also when we look out at our world, we're like, like, I am not making God's name look good at all. Like, I might be doing the opposite. Or, we, or, or you know, his reputation as a whole among his people in certain uh, circles. Like, what's the first, uh, pastorally, how do you go from recognizing that and being grieved and it, hmm. like, hurting you to, like, moving forward in a way that uh, doesn't lead to just, like, shame, but moves through conviction to something hmm. important and good. How do I personally, how do I, when I'm counseling folks in the church, or how do I just, when I'm looking out at the church, I'm sorry, I'm just give me a little um, more on that. So it can be two, two different ways. If we, um, like, I, I was at lunch yesterday, and I heard somebody say, a, a, a waiter, tell someone, um, yeah, Sundays are the worst when mm. churchgoers oh. get out of church and they oh, no. the worst. You know, oh, and, and you hear that as a sort of moment, but you, I felt as a believer just like, oh, we suck. But I suck. You actually heard him say that. Yes. Oh. But it's that sentiment when you hear among non believers in your heart aches and you're like, I am the reason and we are the reason and all of us are sin. How do you, how do you respond? In your, or how do you uh, speak to that in your heart? And you did not want to say anything to the waiter. <laughs> you did not want to say anything to the waiter and say, "I'm so sorry." Yeah, I, I was eavesdropping. Yeah. Did uh, by the way, just this is not an answer to your question. Did he did he say because Christians are rude and they don't tip well? Yes. Oh. Oh, that yeah. 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 Man. Um, yeah, you've heard that as an anecdote, but I've never actually heard someone say that. What'd you say, Jordan? I said you changed it in heaven. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait how, hang on. Okay, go ahead, and then I'll, I'll I don't, yeah, please. I was going to say the same thing when I go to a X, Y, and Z bar, and I see a guy wearing a cross and he's having a drink. Do I run up to him and say, hey, you should not be doing that? I can't throw judgment on you. You can't Well, and to be fair, having a drink is, in a bar isn't necessarily simple. No, I'm just saying generally. Yeah. It could cause someone to stumble, and Paul talks about that. As he's sitting with us, yeah. and he's telling us, you have one more, you have one more, or you stop. And again, you know, I'm talking to my own self, not just about the local brewery or pub, I'm going to say the same thing. What I do for a living is at the post office. Hey, good morning, how are you doing? Here's your mail. And having that person go, it's going to get colder out there in December. You didn't have to say that. You just went, like, hey, you want a glass of water? Or, you know, just good morning and take the mail and go. And, like, you know, it's hard that in any of our careers what we do just to humbly say good morning or good afternoon, a good pleasant greeting or something like that. But you don't know how the other person is doing. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably react just like you with, with, with um, grief, but then trying to, one, trying to not be not trying to not fulfill that um, anecdotal, you know, trying to not be that person, um, sort of being chastened by that. And then also I think, I, I feel like what's, uh, what's so ugly to the world is just Christians who aren't living with the humility that this kind of truth brings, but rather chest thumping and saying, and pointing the finger and saying like, when I look at, Everything the Bible diagnoses, I'm pointing the finger and going, hey, world, versus, no, I'm, you know, I'm the problem. And walking around in humility of knowing that I don't deserve uh, 
I don't deserve the kindness of God, which is why it's, it's the gospel, um, because it's, it's free and it's undeserved and offering that to others. So I think, um, you know, just trying to be, it's just so easy to be condemnatory, but if, if the world is, um, perceives that Christians are the ones that are pointing the finger and that are condemning, then that's just not going to be, we don't get the gospel if we're doing that, and we're expecting the world to behave not like the world, and why would they want what we have? And so, um, I mean, so... We have to stop With us, and walking in humility, and just being grateful, and then through that humility, winsomeness, and truly loving people that, um, hopefully they'll see the loveness of Christ in us, and so often I fall short of that. But I think that's, that's deeply convicting. It's... Um, you know, and praying that I won't continue to be part of the problem. I don't, yeah, I mean, I react just like you, but I don't, I, I did, probably didn't get to do a good job of answering that question, but. Um, no, it was kind of convoluted, that's good. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking it. Why don't we, let's, uh, let's sing out. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this on the recording this time. Ha! I usually don't. We can share. All right. Um, I once was lost in darkest night. Yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all who might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you hallelujah all I have is Christ Jesus is my life. Amen.
Um, let me, as, as we were singing, I actually had a thought um, about Jesus that, sister, I, I, don't even, I don't know your name. Give us your Katie. name. Katie. Okay. Kate, that Katie asked, um, just thinking about Jesus as we were singing about Jesus and all that he's done for us and just about how, of course, he's always the answer, especially to the toughest, toughest questions, but just you can't, you can't answer better than just thinking about how his life is like the antithesis of all the ugly Christians that the world sees and that that waiter saw and just how like he chose, I mean, his, his moniker became, like his ugly nickname among the, among the religious was uh, friend of sinners and they thought that was, you know, a slur. But like, if we could all live in such a way that people could be like, that that girl's a, that guy's a friend of sinners. Like, he just hung out with the dregs and with people that nobody else. Uh, certainly, the religious leaders didn't hang out with because he loved people who he loved people, and he he didn't judge because he knew he was going to go and be judged in our place. And he he loved people who knew that they needed needed him. And uh, and uh, man, it, the world would. That's our answer. And he's our answer. It's not just go try to live more like him. It is that, but it's let him live in us and run to him, right? Back to that's what we were talking about earlier. So would it be so, Lord? And hopefully uh, we'll see you guys here next week. Thanks so much for coming. God bless you and stay warm out there. I hope the, I hope the weather persists. All right. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you.